Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm saying hello again. Um, My name is Lisa Adkins and I'm the head of School of Social and Political Sciences. Um, here at Sydney, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this joint Social Sciences Week and Sydney Ideas event. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty over this land has never been ceded. This is one of five events that our school is putting on as part of the National Social Science Week. The the aims of the week are to showcase the relevance and diversity of social science research in Australia and to celebrate the role of the social sciences in shaping society. Judging by the number of people in this room and the interest in in this event, I think we can say with some certainty that the appetite for social science research is extremely strong. This is such an encouraging sign. This morning, I attended the launch of parliamentary friends of, of the social sciences at Parliament House in Canberra. The aim of the group is to reconnect social science research and social science experts to policy in a context where populist forces and new forms of political career making have problematized the expert and evidence-based research. In this broader context, it has never been more important for universities to work to maintain community trust in our integrity as sites for the generation of knowledge. Social Science Week, with its wonderfully outward-facing orientation, is a powerful way in which we can do some of that trust-building work. Our speaker tonight, Frank Stilwell, is the consummate outward-facing social scientist. He is a highly influential Australian political economist and professor emeritus in our school. He is known for his extensive contributions to Australian political economy and especially for his critiques of conventional economics and advocacy of alternative economic strategies which prioritize social justice and sustainability. He has taught for over 40 years at the university and has twice received the university's award for excellence in teaching. He is author of multiple books and is a fellow of the Academy of of the Social Sciences in Australia. Frank played a leading and key role in establishing an independent political economy department at the university. This is the only political economy department in the the Southern Hemisphere, and it houses some of the most exciting and innovative political economists in the world. 
But more than that, Frank has been an inspirational presence here at the university for generations of students and staff. This evening, Frank will be talking from his new book on the topic of the political economy of inequality. After he will engage in a conversation with Michael Yander from the ABC. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Frank Stilwell. Thank you very much, Lisa. I appreciate that uh, lovely introduction. And uh, thank you all very much for coming tonight. Uh, I will be talking about my new book. Uh, it's a big subject. Uh, and I try in my new book to do a stock take of the current state of knowledge. I'm standing here purposefully because I brought along uh, some books by other authors on this topic. Uh, many of which have come out in the last decade or so since the global financial crash. Uh, probably the most well-known and most influential is this massive tome by the French political economist Thomas Piketty. And uh, I think for a large volume full of economic statistics and graphs, it's, had an, it's almost become a household name for it, its path-breaking work in understanding what's going on out there around the world in terms of inequality between the rich and poor. And significantly, it directs our attention to wealth as distinct from incomes. In other words, the accumulated wealth that people have, whether it's held in the form of real estate, whether it's held in the form of financial assets, uh, such as stocks, shares, derivatives, all of which gives cumulative advantage over time to those who hold it. It gives cumulative power to those who have that economic wealth, including power over political institutions, as we know only too well in Australia. So I think we owe Piketty an enormous debt for his path-breaking work. But there are other great scholars who I'll be referring to uh, in tonight's presentation, people like Milanovic, uh, Atkinson, and of course, uh, Piketty's collaborators who are now putting out the Global Inequality Report, uh, people like Gabriel Zuckman uh, and uh, other, other uh, analysts who are sifting carefully through the data about the situation in various countries. The Australian authors looking locally at what's happening, including uh, uh, federal MP Andrew Lee. And of course, around the world, there are other scholars who are looking at the social consequences of economic inequality. On top of my little pile of writers, including Wilkinson and Pickett, major contributors to, in this field, is uh, the oldest of the books here by Richard Tawney, written back in the 1930s, a classic work on equality and why it matters. So 
I stand on the shoulders of giants who've worked in this field. I try to take stock of what's happening, what is the state of knowledge, but more importantly, try to move beyond the data, the statistics, the economic analyses to try to achieve a deeper level of understanding. And I think that, that distinction is very important. And the more I've researched in this field and in other aspects of contemporary economic and social problems and policy, I've come to realize that important difference. Yes, in universities, we can generate useful knowledge. And already we have a mountain of useful knowledge about income and wealth inequalities. But a deeper understanding seems more elusive. Why does it matter? How does that knowledge help us to understand the world, live in it, and act intelligently and effectively? How does it help us to create a better world? And through what channels would those changes occur? Those are, I think, the elements in moving from information to understanding, perhaps in moving from data to wisdom. It's a difficult transition, but I think that's the challenge we face here in studying inequality, as in so many other aspects of the social sciences. I find this sequence a useful model for social science research and for political economic research in particular. Beginning by studying the patterns of what's going on out there. In this case, the dimensions and extent of inequality within and across countries and globally. Then trying to dig a little deeper into understanding the processes that are causing those patterns. In this case, understanding the processes that shape who owns what and who gets what. Then reflecting on the problems and the causal connections between the processes and patterns of inequality and the problems that result. The, these problems are variously economic, social, and environmental, as well as impacting more generally on our well-being and happiness. I'll say some more about that a little later. But then there's the political stage in the analysis where one has to grapple with the questions about what strategies would be necessary for making a difference, for resolving those problems and trying to move forward. And then talking of moving forward, reflections on the prospects. Social scientists, I suggest, cannot any more than anyone else know the future, but we can identify the trends, we can develop future scenarios of likely outcomes, and we can try to see how more enlightened public policies could change our collective futures. So that's the agenda that I use in constructing my book, in constructing my talk tonight, and which I suggest to you is a useful way of thinking in general about uh, complex issues within the social sciences.
It's a model, in other words, for helping us develop information that leads to understanding and to action. If we look at all the people in the world and rank them from the poorest to the richest, irrespective of where they live, this is pretty much what the picture would look like. And I begin my book by talking about a grand parade of dwarfs and giants. But on the vertical scale in this diagram uh, is the amount of income that these people receive. And along the horizontal scale is the whole of the world's population divided into a hundred groups from the poorest to the richest. So you can see that for, uh, sorry, let's come back to that. For the people in this bottom half of the world's population, they are living in varying degrees of poverty. Now, whether you define them as falling above or below a poverty line is somewhat arbitrary, but you'd have to say that by any standards, the bottom half of the world's population lives very poorly in economic terms. At the other extreme, there are some people who have fabulously high incomes. And indeed, this diagram actually understates the uh, incomes of the top 1%. Because if you disaggregated that top 1% down to the 0.1% or the 0.01% or the 0.001%, you would find incomes that go on that final bar chart well beyond the height of this building, indeed approaching the lowest level of the clouds above us. And I might say in passing, that is just the inequality in the distribution of incomes. If you did a similar depiction of the distribution of wealth, you would find a much more startling uh, degree of inequality because the, the poorest half of the world's population effectively has no assets of any substance. Simple homes, uh, perhaps a simple means of transportation, but very little beyond that. Whereas those at the wealthiest end of the distribution have almost unimaginable wealth. Again, I'll return to that a little later. But those at the top end, such as just taking the top 10%, have been doing better and better in recent years. Their share of the total income has been growing. Here we show that for an array of countries. Russia is the purple line, and you can see the dramatic change that occurred uh, around 1990. Of course, that was associated with the collapse of the former Soviet Union and the effective capture of the state assets by a small group of oligarchs. Suddenly, Russia became for all its faults of its previous regime, suddenly became a much more starkly unequal society. But in the other countries shown there, in North America, 
in, in uh, China, India, Europe, one can see a similar general trend towards an increasing share of the total income going to the top 10% of households. This diagram comes from the uh, path-breaking work of Branko Milanovic, to which I earlier referred, and it is commonly known as the elephant curve for an obvious reason. Um, it relates to Milanovic's pioneering work in trying to work out for the world as a whole who was getting richest most rapidly. And you can see that there's a broad swathe of people from the, whoops, sorry, I'm hitting the wrong button here, uh, a broad swathe of people from the quite poor to the mid-range in the distribution, all of whom achieved substantial increases in their real incomes over that uh, period of 20 years up to 2008. Then there's a group here who were not doing well. Indeed, in some cases, there was a, a diminution in the real value of their incomes. And then the, the top tail, the rising trunk of the elephant, so to speak, uh, of, of rich people who got richer. It's a useful depiction of what was happening during those decades because it did show significant numbers of people being lifted out of poverty. Not everyone. Those at the bottom remained pretty well stuck, but for people in this range, many of whom living in China and India, the two world's most populous nations, uh, there were significant increases in incomes and a reduction in levels of poverty. But for, not for all, an update of this analysis has been developed by Thomas Piketty and his colleagues, uh, which shows a somewhat different representation of how the situation looked in the period uh, up to 2016. Indeed, extending Milanovic's earlier research, both by going a little bit further back in history and coming a bit further forward in time. And in this diagram, significantly, um, significantly, we see a stretching out on the horizontal axis to give us a clearer picture of what's happening among the very rich. This doesn't look like an elephant anymore. Indeed, it's sometimes been described as a giraffe diagram because of its very long neck. Um, Yes, it still shows that a lot of poor people were lifted out of poverty, particularly in those developing countries, the big populous countries of China and India, but also countries in our region, such as Indonesia, other places in Southeast Asia. These were the uh, emerging countries with uh, substantial economic growth, benefiting many sections of the community. But in this range, the, the dip in the earlier elephant curve and the, the plateau in the middle part of this giraffe curve, we see a squeezed bottom 90% in the US and Western Europe. In other words, these are 
including Australasia, people whose incomes more plateaued in, in this particular uh, period of the last uh, four decades or so. And then at the top end, from the 90th percentile upwards, and in particular among the top 1% and the top 0.1 and 0.01%, we see spectacular rises in incomes. Indeed, the top 1% captured 27% of the total income growth over this period. Some of them are billionaires. And this is where they reside. Yes, there are now many fabulously wealthy people in China and India, for example. They've moved up the, the rankings, and they're up there alongside Russia, Germany. But of course, well short of uh, the United States. United States with 155, of course, clearly is the, the economic superpower, the, uh, the locus uh, of global billionaires. And in the United States, that top 1% has been spectacularly increasing its share of uh, total income. Total income shares measured on the vertical axis, time on the horizontal axis. You can see over this 35-year uh, period, the uh, top 1% has increased its share of US total income from about 11% up to over 20%. And at the other extreme, the bottom 50% of US people, the US working class, broadly speaking, uh, has a declining share. I won't speculate at this point about the connection between that and the election of Donald Trump, but sometimes when you get growing inequality on this scale, it can lead to some quite bizarre political consequences. In other parts of the world, the situation is much less dramatic in terms of the redistributions of income and wealth. In Western Europe, for example, aggregating all the countries together in this diagram, we see that the, uh, the top 1% has indeed been increasing its share, not uniformly, but over, over the period, it's gone up from around 10% to uh, a little over 12%, a modest increase at the top end, and correspondingly, a modest decline uh, uh, in the income share of the bottom 50%. But nothing like the extreme uh, polarity that we observe in, in the United States. So it's a healthy reminder that Capitalism comes in different varieties. It can come in a sort of a dog-eat-dog -dog version, as we see in the United States, with the rich getting fabulously rich at the expense of the rest of the people, or we can see a more moderated version in the uh, European countries, and in particular in the Nordic states, the Scandinavian countries of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, and Finland. So what's driving the disparities? What, what are the underlying 
processes that are causing these patterns. Somewhat schematically, I think one could say that there are some contemporary political economic changes that taken together have uh, inegalitarian consequences. Globalization, uh, financialization, neoliberalism, Urbanization, I think, is an important element in this story too, because as we know only too well in Australian cities, with urbanization comes increasing real estate values, which has the effect of redistributing wealth to those who, for whatever reason, have a stake in ownership of real estate and makes it ever harder for those trying to perhaps buy a first home to get into that uh, uh ownership uh, uh, situation. And technological change, of course, is simultaneously making the future of work much more uncertain. And that, too, impacts very much on young people entering labor markets, which are insecure, with a strong emphasis on short-term contracts, part-time work, various forms of precarious labor. And put together, one can see a scissors effect at work there in the housing market, growing inequalities associated with ownership of increasingly valuable assets in the labor market, growing inequalities associated with these technological and structural changes that are making more and more people vulnerable to short-run income fluctuations and to unemployment. This does not bode well. Indeed, I would suggest, and I do elaborate this argument thoroughly in the book, that what we're observing here is a process of circular and cumulative causation. Mainstream economists often talk about the economy out there as if it was some kind of machine with a natural tendency towards equilibrium. On the contrary, I suggest that when you look at the effect of these contemporary political economic changes, you see a, a tendency towards cumulative disequilibrium. Those who begin the game with the best hand come out of it with the best outcomes. Wealth and, and poverty therefore become reproduced and amplified over time. They're two sides of the same coin, uh, which, as we'll see in a moment, has important implications for policy responses. And that connection is particularly important where there is no inheritance taxation, because it means that over time, the cumulative imbalance between w wealth and poverty becomes perpetuated and intensified across the generations. Piketty's work draws attention to that, and we're certainly starting to see it bite quite significantly in Australia. 
There's much talk, of course, about the, uh, the problems faced by a younger generation. Now, as I've already said, I think if you look at the conditions both in labor and housing markets, those are real concerns. But more fundamentally, what we're seeing is the long-established intra-generational inequalities now being perpetuated in terms of amplified intergenerational inequalities. Those who grow up in wealthy households can draw on the bank of mum and dad uh, commonly to buy assets such as uh, real estate. Those who uh, grow up in less privileged uh, circumstances do not have recourse to such uh, easy funds. At, at best, they manage to get uh, mortgage finance and that Worst, that creates a cumulative debt trap which makes them extraordinarily vulnerable to increased interest rates, which may happen again because, frankly, it would be remarkable if interest rates could stay as low as they are now for the decades to come. There are countervailing tendencies, though. If we look back in history, to particularly to the 1950s and 1960s, one can see strong effects that countered the basic tendencies to inequality, partly coming through the role of the trade unions. So indeed, throughout the 20th century, the unions played a major role in offsetting uh, the unequalizing effects that are intrinsic to a capitalist economy. And so too did social democratic governments implementing progressive income taxation, uh, implementing welfare state initiatives that cushioned the overall inequalities within capitalist society. But we now see both of those elements in retreat. Less uh, influence of the trade unions, less coverage of the workforce by trade unions, less uh, committed social democratic politics, uh, and hence less countervailing tendencies to work against the underlying capitalist uh, processes. Not surprisingly, the effect is growing economic inequality in the 21st century. The share of wages in total income is falling. Incomes come either as wages for labor undertaken or from the ownership of land and capital in the form of rents or in the form of profits or dividends to shareholders. These are the IMF statistics. No loony left source here. Um, it's uh, perfectly respectable <laughs> economic data from uh, a most conservative source. The blue line shows the share of wages in total income for the advanced economies declining over the uh, last uh, what's that, 50 years or so. 
not, we don't have quite such good data for the uh, emerging market and developing economies, uh, but uh, that suggests overall uh, a somewhat similar trend and at a lower base with labour's share being smaller in those uh, poorer countries. Significantly, too, alongside this declining share of labour incomes is the decline of public wealth. Everything I've said to, so far relates to incomes and wealth that are privately uh, owned and received. But of course, in all societies, there is public wealth too. Here we are at the University of Sydney. We're enjoying this uh, bit of public wealth here. You go to the, the opera house, you, you, you use the railways. Uh, the, 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 these are public assets. But as a proportion of total wealth, this is on the decline in most nations. And indeed, that's the predictable outcome of neoliberal policies that often involve the privatization of public enterprises. You can see it very strikingly in China. As private wealth has grown, the relative importance of public wealth has declined. But also in the other countries shown here, uh, a general downward tendency in the share of wealth that is publicly owned. And I would say that this is a very significant part of the inequality story. Because if you've got a society that has abundant public wealth, inequalities of private wealth don't matter quite so much. Imagine if we had a society in which there was excellent and affordable, if not free, public education, public health, public housing, public transport, public childcare, then everyone would have the basis for a decent life. And even with a modest private income, you could do okay. But where the public wealth is eroded, the inequalities of private wealth bite doubly hard. And indeed, all of the growing volume of evidence on the connection between inequality and social problems suggests that this impairs the possibility of a good society. This particular diagram comes from Wilkinson and Pickett, the British epidemiologists who do, have done pioneering work in this area, showing that the countries that have the highest uh, income inequality, measured on this horizontal axis, tend to have the most intense uh, health and social problems measured on the vertical axis. Thus, to take the extreme case, the United States, a highly unequal society, has a high incidence of a wide range of health and social problems. Poor physical health, poor mental health, poor rates of educational attainment, high rates of violence, of crime, of prison incarceration. 
social problems of these kinds tend to be correlated with the level of income inequality. At the other extreme from the USA, you have Japan, a more cohesive society, more peaceful, with less incidence of the social problems I've just described. Where's Australia? There, there we are. Australia is sort of in the middle, a bit below the, uh, the line of best fit, which is nice to know. But the question, of course, is, is the tendency to move more in this direction or in that? Indeed, in the whole time that I've lived in Australia, which is now approaching 50 years, I've, I've always felt that this is potentially a wonderful country. It could be an exemplar, but only if we move in this direction, not if we move in that direction. That, that seems to be the, the political economic choice if we're talking about national economic strategies. We've got a prime minister at the moment who says he's got a plan. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. If we really had a plan, we'd be starting to think about whether or not we want to emulate the United States with its low rates of taxation, its emphasis on thrusting entrepreneurship and the accumulation of wealth, or whether we would rather aspire to be among the countries here who have more sustainable, peaceful, and uh, you might say solidaristic uh, characteristics. A somewhat similar story relates to the evidence on the association between income inequality and social mobility. Some would say, and I have some sympathy with this, that in economic inequality is okay as long as everyone gets a chance for the goodies. Well, the evidence, although not powerful, tends to suggest that uh, the countries that have the highest income inequality, measured on the horizontal axis, tend to have the lowest social mobility. In other words, the chances of you winding up in pretty much the same socioeconomic position of your, as your parents are greater, the greater is the inequality in the society. In other words, the more Unequal societies have the greater lock-in over time, inhibiting social mobility. Again, the US is at the end here, high inequality, and each generation tending to reproduce the socioeconomic status of its parents. Uh, at the other extreme, the Nordic states, again, are more equitable, and more fluid in terms of equality of opportunity. Well, does it have to be that way? Could there be policies for greater equality? Yes, there could. Policies could raise the floor. That's the, the most traditional way of addressing economic inequalities, by trying to lift people out of poverty. And reliably, that is a good thing. But 
We do know from other social science research that beyond the poverty trap, further increases in income and wealth don't reliably make people happier. Pursuing that chain of reasoning is, I think, increasing attention to the need to lower the ceiling. In other words, to recognize that the pursuit of wealth taken to the extreme is ultimately does more harm than good. It doesn't actually do much good for those who accumulate the wealth. Managing enormous wealth is such a hassle. <laughs> and its effect for the society as a whole is to create the tensions, the class conflicts, the politics of envy. This isn't a product of left-wing intellectuals, still left, less uh, Bill Shorten and the ALP, whipping up class division. No, it arises out of what's going on in the economic and social system out there. And some tempering of it by putting ceilings on inequality might well deserve a place on a political agenda. And of course, the small L liberal principle to which you, it's almost impossible to find any dissent. The need to create more equality of opportunity in the intervening space between those floors and ceilings. That's an admirably small L liberal principle, universally pronounced and seldom implemented. The policies that could achieve these goals, policies of redistribution through government taxes and expenditures, which are familiar to us, progressive income taxes, uh, and improved welfare state provisions. But there are also policies that get to the, the market incomes before uh, governments redistribute. These are the policies like basic income, which could involve the provision of a basic income at, at least equal to the poverty level for all citizens, irrespective of their ability to work, irrespective of their personal circumstances. That would eradicate poverty overnight and increase people's freedom about how they plan and develop their own lives. It's an idea that's been around for a long time to come, uh, a long time, but perhaps its time has come. Other scholars are writing about the need to civilize the corporation, or to put it the same point in a more radical language, to challenge corporate power. And others are talking about extending the commons, that principle not just of public wealth, but of common ownership, common stewardship, uh, so that we may all share more fruitfully in the way in which wealth is created and distributed. The use of cooperatives as a form of business enterprise rather than uh, traditional forms of capitalist enterprise uh, get on the agenda uh, when the issues are seen from that perspective. 
Well, I've talked about the patterns, the processes, the problems, the policies, and finally, I use this slide to illustrate the prospects. It's taken straight from uh, the work of Thomas Piketty and his colleagues, and it highlights what they think will happen unless policies of that kind are implemented. The top 1%, shown in the red line, will steadily increase its share of income and wealth. The top 0.1% will increase its share. The top 0.001% will increase its share too. And the middle class, interestingly, will have a declining share. Now the politics of that is particularly interesting because it starts to raise the question, certainly for the advanced capitalist nations, of whether or not that uh, coalition between the very wealthy and the middle class will prove to be sustainable in the years ahead. On that cliffhanger moment, <laughs> I conclude my remarks and invite uh, ABC journalist Michael Yander to come and join me in conversation had a long association with both political economy and particularly Frank Stilwell, who was my honours supervisor in political economy. So it's a real honour to be able to, to be up here and actually be in this conversation with you. Now, as your pile of books demonstrates amply, and most of those are from post-global financial crisis, there was a huge increase in discussion about inequality after that event, notably Thomas Piketty's work and, of course, as you pointed out, the IMF and OECD, very conservative institutions, raising concerns about the level of inequality. But do you think that moment has passed now that we're more than a decade on from the financial crisis? Mm. Certainly the global financial crash uh, brought all the political economic questions out in the open. Uh, is, is the system stable? No. The, the, the mainstream economists' assurances that uh, financial markets would find their own equilibrium were suddenly shattered. And ever, ever since the global financial crash, there's been a lot of discussion about whether a new global financial architecture can, can be uh, established to prevent such an appalling uh, crisis occurring again. Inequality uh, is a sort of part of that story too. I think most political economists recognise that inequality played a part in the global financial crash, most obviously in its impact in housing markets with low-income people becoming overburdened with debt, becoming vulnerable to changes in housing values, interest rates and so on. That hasn't changed. Uh, indeed, the housing stresses associated with inequality have increased, and to the extent that the global financial crash was triggered by the, the conditions in the US housing market, that, 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 that could happen again tomorrow. But if that 
huge crash that we saw and massive recessions, even in countries like Ireland where property prices fell more than 50%, unemployment was huge. We're still seeing it in Greece. We saw the Occupy Wall Street movement in reaction, particularly in the United States. Sure. If that didn't accomplish any change, and in fact inequalities become much worse uh, since the global financial crisis, do you think it will take another, even worse crisis to prompt some kind of redistributive action? Well, it could do so. Uh, I mean, the typical effect of a crisis is some crisis response. Um, uh, Kevin Rudd admirably produced a Keynesian crisis response back at the time of the last global crash. Uh, I'm not sure that the current Australian government is quite savvy enough to, to do so. I mean, the commitment to continue running a budgetary uh, or, or to attain a budgetary surplus seems quite bizarre in current economic circumstances. I mean, even Econ 101 would teach you that, uh, that that's not the way to go. And indeed, uh, uh, if I can just develop that point a little bit more, it seems to me we're set up by this government's commitment to have major tax cuts uh, for the rich, to run a budgetary surplus, in the event of a crash occurring, the only thing that could then be done is to cut government spending, and reliably that would most severely impact on the poor. So this is a, 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 a setup which is going to actually increase inequality, not, not, not help resolve it. Uh, and so, but in any case, I, I think we're talking here about a 20-year-plus program. If we really want to turn the ship around, it has to take 20 years to achieve long-term consequences. Well, and just on that point too, of course, there's been increasing calls from sections within the government to have even lower interest rates than the record low rates that we already have. And of course, the Reserve Bank is doing a lot of the heavy lifting to try and stimulate the economy. Now, there is some research out there about the effect that the low rates we've had since the global financial crisis have had on increasing inequality, mainly through the increase in asset prices. Indeed. Uh, I think a lot of the increased uh, asset values is, 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 is due to that uh, interest rate regime. And... Uh, particularly in the Australian case where you've got tax advantages for people investing in uh, second, third, 20th homes. Uh, that, uh, that <sighs> this, this compounds the problem. So do you think that there is a tipping point in capitalist systems where a certain level of income and or wealth inequality undermines the system itself? Yes, and I think we're at it. Uh, I think we've reached that tipping point, and I think it's recognised by some of the leading global capitalist institutions. Uh, uh, the OECD and the IMF are, are warning that uh, growing inequality will impair economic prospects. Uh, uh, th th these are impeccably capitalist uh, institutions who are concerned that 
growing inequality will impair the functioning of capitalism itself. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking here about revolution, although the historical precedents. Uh, I'm talking about the lower rates of economic growth that result when you get inequality reaching these extreme levels. A Keynesian would, would give you a clear explanation in terms of poor people spend all their income, rich people don't. And so if you redistribute income from rich to poor, you tend to get higher levels of expenditure, which keeps the economic system pumping along long, more consumption, more production. If you have concentrated income and wealth, uh, that process works much less reliably. And this is what the Governor of the Reserve Bank is saying to the Australian government at the moment. Pump it up, pump it up. And, and the best way of doing that is by redistributing from rich to poor. Yes, we, we just saw the, the National Australia Bank's business survey they do every month, retail continues to be the weakest sector in conditions and confidence in the economy, which would sure. seem to suggest that it is that consumer sector that's really feeling the pinch. Mm, indeed. Um, but of course, there is more than one potential response to inequality. Now, you've pointed towards Australia perhaps moving towards that Scandinavian mm. social welfare, democratic welfare state model. Um, you also raised the, the prospect that some government may choose to take Australia towards the United States model. Mm. Uh, and indeed, we're seeing, as you pointed out, Donald Trump and political developments globally. What is the risk in, in terms of maybe Australia's reaction to in growing inequality going that way? Uh, the, the rise of populism uh, on the political right, I think it's got complex roots, but I think inequality is part of the story. I was just talking earlier today to John Keane about his uh, next book, which is going to be about uh, the ascendancy of a sort of... Uh, what was his phrase? I noted it down at the time I was talking to him because it really jarred with me. Despotism. Despotism, yes. The ever-effervescent John Keane's new book will be about despotism. And uh, in other words, it suggests that Trump or even Boris Johnson are not just odd cases, but there's a more general tendency towards authoritarian regimes. And why should one be surprised? Uh, think back to General Pinochet in Chile, Margaret Thatcher, people espousing free market economics, but accompanying it with an increasingly authoritarian state. But these people are never gonna drive more equality. They're just enforcing inequality. Uh, so I, I, I frankly find this a, an extraordinarily pernicious development. So how can that outcome be shaped in the direction that you were talking about towards the social democratic model rather than the other direction? I fear, Michael, that we're on a segue into talking about at the ALP. <laughs> well, it is very topical because there is a lot of discussion for anyone who was watching the news today and over 
recent weeks about the ALP's policy review. And of course, some have seen the recent election result as a, a repudiation of redistributive policies. How much do you think that's going to set back uh, the prospect for the redistributive tax policies that you were talking about and that Labor took to the, the last election? I was devastated by the result of that last election. As I'm sure some of you in the audience did, went through waves of different emotion. Uh, first of all, I blame the Australian people for their... For, <laughs> their stupidity in, in not even voting according to their own self-interest, uh, quite apart from, you know, burying any longer-term notion of a more equitable society and a fair go. In other words, the rhetoric uh, seemed to trump the policies. And uh, if that was always going to be the case for a mildly redistributive agenda, uh, I would be deeply depressed. Deep, deeply depressed. But uh, more mature thoughts looking back on the election, I think uh, it was a, ALP ran a terrible campaign. I mean, I think one lesson you have to take is that, you know, coming up with piecemeal policies, uh, you know, makes you a target for a scare campaign. It's easily run. Uh, Kill Bill was always a good strategy for the uh, Conservative coalition. Bill was always vulnerable to being killed. And uh, uh, Clive Palmer's 60 to $80 billion pumped into the Kill Bill campaign uh, surely uh, made a difference, even if it just swung two votes in a hundred, that, that that gives you the election result that we got. Um, so do you think Labor should have run a more explicitly redistributive campaign rather than focusing on the details of the individual I policies? Think, I think so. And 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 they, they missed the opportunity, which I've tried to hint at in my remarks tonight, to link uh, equality with prosperity. Um, th that's, what, but that's what the IMF and the OECD are now saying based upon their research, that the countries that are more equal tend to have the more reliable economic growth, the, the less vulnerability to recession. If, if Labor had only run on that talk, then they wouldn't have left prosperity to the Conservative coalition. Uh, in other words, they've, by emphasising it, inequality and the need to address it, fine, but it, it left this vacuum which enabled the coalition to say, yeah, but we're going to be, under us, you'll have better macroeconomic outcomes and that will trickle down to everyone and we'll give tax relief and uh, don't let the, the, this other mob stick their hand in your pocket. Uh, I mean, it was a gift to the coalition. They didn't even have to come up with any policies. They just had to say... We're not them. And uh, lo and behold, now we're, we're suffering with the consequences. I mean, on that point, though, uh, it's very hard to combat fear campaigns. Whatever the genesis of it, there was a lot of discussion in the electorate about a death tax, which is a policy that no political party, the Greens, had even dropped that from their policy platform several years ago. I remember interviewing you about inheritance taxes for a story a few years ago. No parties taking it to the election, yet it became an election issue. How does that get overcome, that level of fear and that the ease with which that fear can be generated? 
I'm looking forward to the discussion with the audience tonight because I, I don't have a, a neat answer to that one, Michael. I, all I can say is that I'm, I'm a university educator with some ambitions to have influence beyond the university. And I think knowledge and understanding has to play a part in this process. If we're talking about a 20-year transition, it involves getting the information out, deepening the understanding, generating public discussion about what it means to have a good society, what it means to actually practice a fair go in reality and not just espouse it in rhetoric. Um, it's, it's a long-term process. It, it can't be done in a short-run election campaign around a couple of policy issues. It's got to involve a transformation of the public culture. People sometimes ask me, you know, whether or not uh, the notion of a fair go still has traction. I think it does. I think a lot of people like the rhetoric and just need to see how that can actually be connected into practical policies for achieving it on the ground in the in the in the society in which we live. So so that that's. A, a rather limp answer, but it's an educator's answer to your all-important question. And I'll, I'll share with you one of the challenges. I saw some dis, dis, disturbing statistics last week from the, taken from the Reuters annual news study. 60% of Australians actively avoid news. We're one of the lightest news-consuming nations in the world. So that does present a lot of challenges, doesn't it, when you're talking about what are relatively complex policies Indeed. and yet most people literally don't want to read about them. Yes. There's quite a lot of research done on attitude formation. I mean, in general, surveys of the Australian people think that they, uh, reveal that they nearly always underestimate the extent of economic inequality. They would like more emphasis in uh, creating an equal society, but they don't trust government to do it, which leaves me wondering how it comes about. Let us pray. <laughs> Maybe extending the commons cooperatives. It's, yes. It, 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 it is interesting that that, 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 that constellation is, is, is the big challenge, I think, if one's talking about turning around public opinion. Uh, those are the issues that I think need to be addressed. And you're probably in a better position as a journalist than I am to engage with that process of opinion formation. But it sounds like... <laughs> Most not people ignore us. Yeah. Um, I think we'll cry on each other's shoulder at this point. <laughs> uh, but we've focused a lot domestically in this Q&A, but inequality is a global issue and there's still massive inequalities despite the rise in, in wealth in the middle class of India and China. Mm. They're still a lot poorer than, than Western nations. Yes. If it's that hard to sell, though, to get greater redistribution within Australia by increasing taxes, how on earth in Australia and across the developed world do we get support for greater foreign aid and assisting those countries that are still at the bottom of those graphs and really lagging behind? 
Yes, this, this is a huge challenge. Uh, it's certainly true that uh, poverty has been reduced in countries like India and China and some of the other developing countries too, but there's still a huge challenge. And in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the challenge is, if anything, bigger than ever. Uh, the UN uh, guideline is for all countries to give 0.7% of their gross national product to foreign aid to help deal with the poverty alleviation and uh, more generalized economic development around the globe. Some countries meet that target. The Nordic states, I think, generally do. The, the UK does. Australia doesn't. Uh, the, the United States doesn't. We're running at about a quarter of, of the contribution that will be necessary to meet the UN target. Um, and there's little prospect of uh, much increase, I think. There's not strong popular support, although NGOs who are active in this field and some big philanthropists too uh, are doing uh, or showing the way. I, I've donated the, the royalties from my book to Oxfam uh, in an attempt to make a it's not going to turn the ship around, but uh, uh, at least... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, if uh, everyone uh, goes out and buys a uh, copy, uh, that's the start. Uh, uh, and I just think we could and should do more. Uh, if we want to make a difference in, in, in these difficult circumstances we've been discussing this evening, I think we've got to recognise in general that there's some necessary elements in progressive social change. We do need critique. Uh, in other words, we need a critical analysis of what's going on out there, whether it's causing climate change, whether it's causing growing economic inequality, whether it's causing vulnerability to a periodic economic crisis and social stress. We do need a vision of the alternative to which we aspire, a society that is sustainable, secure, and equitable. And we do need a strategy for getting from here to there. This is where it starts getting hard. And we need an organization to take us on the journey. I think those four elements are necessary in any process of uh, social change. So, what action is now needed? I think basic income is quite a good rallying point. Uh, it picks up on the critique of inequality. It shows a vision of a society in which everyone has, as of right, sufficient to meet their basic needs irrespective of their abilities or disabilities, irrespective of whether they're working or not, irrespective of whether there's even work available for them or not. And it increases their capacities to fully develop as individuals and as members of a community. 
the, the American sociologist uh, Eric Olin Wright before his death last year uh, was arguing this case very strongly on any occasion that uh, basic income is in that sense part of a way in which we extend our freedom as well as increasing our cohesion and equity as a society. Uh, so does it constitute a strategy for getting from here and there? Getting, getting it on the agenda is the first part of the uh, ambition, but it seems to me that people are certainly talking about it a lot more than used to be the case. Bertrand Russell, exactly a century ago this year, wrote a book in which he advocated it, among other things, about, as part of his vision of what a good society would be, one that would allow artists, actors, creative people of all kinds, more freedom to be innovative in their own fields of interest and work, uh, while still, of course, allowing for rewards for more conventional productive uh, contributions to society. Yes, it can be part of a strategy of change because radical reforms like that both address immediate needs poverty elimination, expansion of opportunities for people in creative fields of endeavour, and also set in motion, as Eric Olin Wright was arguing, the potential for further transformative changes. In other words, if, if you can get that up, then other good things start to happen, uh, which lead on to further changes. That's the notion of radical reform, which was popularized by the French social scientist, Andre Gortz. Now, quite what organization is necessary to bring that about, I'm not sure, but I do observe there's already growing global integration of proponents of basic income. And that's why I see this as part of, of the push for a, a, a reversal of the direction of political economic change, a, a, a new trajectory uh, which challenges the, uh, the prevailing uh, priorities. So I think it sort of ticks those boxes. Uh, I'm supervising a postgrad student here at Sydney University who's doing his research on this very topic. To what extent uh, basic income would be an affordable and practical option for Australia. And he's working in conjunction with basic income scholars all around the world who are trying to do similar work for, for other countries. It's a growing movement. It could even become uh, a leader in, in such a process of change. But of course, the punchline of my story is, is, is the personal challenge. I, I hope you'll put your energies into linking up with a movement of that kind, but others will make different choices. Some people are, are good at critique, some people are good at vision, some people are good at all, all the organizational aspects, the, the, the political and strategic thinking that are necessary adjuncts to, to the, uh, the development of ideas, knowledge, and understanding. So I think it's appropriate to end our proceedings tonight by putting that personal challenge back to you in, in, in the audience. Yes, these are enormous political economic challenges. We're not going to 
find the answers immediately, but if people beaver away at whatever elements of such a program of change they feel capable of contributing to, then collectively, who knows, we can make a difference. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.